We're here with Emil Ivov. Is that the right way you pronounce it in English? Any way you pronounce it is good, Randy. As long so, as yes. <laughs> That's the way we pronounce it in French. You and I have talked about this before. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it would be fun to catch up with you, Emil, because you we haven't spoken to you in a long, long time. And since uh, this is a season where we're not really having any VUCs on the regular time, we figured we'd, uh, we'd find out what's going on. Now, we talked last Tuesday with Andy, James, Tim, and Michael Graves about 2015. You have kind of a special history in this year. Why don't you, let's trace back the steps in as much as you can speak publicly on this, of how your life has changed. That actually sounds like a fun crowd you had, uh, speaking about 2015. It's, uh, it's, it's been a great year for us, obviously, in, in many levels. Um, actually, for me, the party started even uh, late 2014, uh, when I had my son born. And it's, right. it's actually the same day we started talks about... Uh, the potential acquisition uh, of our company by Atlassian. Uh, then that took some uh, uh, some pain, and a few months later, uh, we um, we were acquired by Atlassian. Then moved over to to Texas, uh, visited a new continent this year. Went to Australia for the first time. It's really a great place. Uh, I was just back there again this um, a, a couple of weeks ago. Actually, really, really, really like Sydney. Uh, also, at last in Sydney is uh, is great because it feels like a uh, like a well established team uh, with the right priorities and everything. So it's um, uh, and and, and obviously um, being able to go to the beach during Christmas that's always uh, always has a funny funny feeling to it. That's a plus, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's break this down for a second, Emil, because. Uh, I'm curious about a couple of things. First of all, the uh, and of course, again, congratulations on your good work with uh, your son. That's excellent. But <laughs> but uh, beyond that, uh, with regard to the first of all, we were talking a cultural change. How, how much had you been to the United States before uh, getting locating temporarily or permanently in Texas? I've always been there for conferences and um, various meetings and events. I never really had the time to to settle in and. And, and learn more about how people um, work and, and, and live. So this is really the first time I'm, uh, I'm actually experiencing the culture. And, you know, that happened to me in a funny way where I was working. I had been in France for probably 10, 15 years maybe, and I was sent to Huntsville, Alabama, uh, to uh, help, um, I don't even remember, it doesn't matter what for, some technical thing, and I visited uh, a company and so on, and we were kind of embedded in the Intergraph company in uh, Huntsville, mm-hmm. which is one of the biggest employers there, I believe. Huge, huge place. So I met like literally dozens of people and worked with them, and I was completely shocked culturally, and I was born in the United States and lived there for over 30 years, so you, you, I can imagine what it's like for you if you had only been there a little bit. Um, in the company, the way things were going, I'll give you one example that I thought was odd, is that some of the people in Intergraph would uh, go out to McDonald's, get the stuff at the drive-in window, and then eat at their desks. Mm-hmm. And that's a typical American thing. The other thing is, of course, they're always sucking on something. It's coffee. Uh, <laughs> it's mostly coffee, but also these big buckets. You would go to a meeting, and people would have a bucket of you know slush, and they'd be sucking on it, even making noises sometimes. Uh, <laughs> so, getting back to you, because this is more about you. How did you know? How did that all work? Culture shock, or not so much? Um, yes and no. Um, 
So I, France, just as just as for you, is my uh, country of adoption. I, I'm not really, um, I'm not born there. So um, I had already gone through one, uh, and that was even in my early 20s. So uh, it was, uh, uh, it challenged a lot of perceptions that I had about the world. Uh, so I suppose I sort of learned um, to accept differences. Uh, when we arrived in the States, it was um, uh, different, of course, uh, but not in a horribly shocking way. So, um, and, and oh, and we were in Texas, which is really uh, another uh, country, which is really another country. Uh, but that, too, is I don't know if it's big, it, because it's Austin or, or it's just uh, uh, valid for whole of Texas. But it's not really that um, different as you would expect. Uh, there are good and bad people everywhere, mostly sure. good. So um, so that was pretty cool. In terms of um, uh, actually, in terms of the, the city, I guess what I missed the most is the actual city. Uh, Austin, like many other American cities, is just a place where you there's a whole a ton of cultural activity, a, com- a ton of musical shows and theaters and everything. But there's just no city. Like you would not go out somewhere and find crowds of people walking around into the coffee shops and everything. It's not like when you go to San Francisco, for example, which is also an American city, but it feels a lot more European that way. Right. Uh, you just have people in every direction. Uh, and again, this is not to say that Austin is a bad place. It's a great place. It's just that I sometimes miss that um, that little difference. And in terms of um, the company, so I've only worked there for Atlassian, so I cannot. Uh, I don't have an opinion for uh, for every possible company, and I think Atlassian might be a little bit different that way from other companies. Uh, but that too just feels doesn't feel that different um, from what I've seen in Europe. Now it does feel a lot of different from just working for your own little startup. Obviously, uh, that was maybe the biggest part of the shock that we experienced. Um, it's um it's one thing to be a team of a team of ten. Um, it's very easy to get consensus all over the board. Um, it, it's very easy to be open about absolutely everything to not have secrets. Uh, and obviously, you have a um, a very well defined and small company. You have a very well defined uh, chain of command. So um, it's uh, even in the occasions where arguments occur, uh, where well, we just go in uh, and you know how they're solved uh, uh, either because the customer is one hand away or uh, or because I would make the call or something like that um, and when you work in a very very big team there's almost 300 people in Austin working from Atlassian, for Atlassian uh, when you have to get agreement as an engineer uh, and just as in many other companies uh, for every product for every project you would have an engineering manager, uh, which is the role that I'm playing, but you would also have a product manager and you would also have um, a designer. And you don't even you don't even have a single point of decision anymore. So there's a lot of coming together. There's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of, obviously, then you have other people controlling budgets and everything. So there's a lot of complexity added to, uh, to development. Obviously, the, the, there's no really... Uh, I don't know if there's any other way to do it, especially when you're at that scale, when you're that big. Um, and um, I don't know, maybe one day people will find out, but uh, uh, that's the, the everyone seems to be working like that. Like in Mozilla, for example, which is a, a, an open source project with a, a nonprofit foundation, um, well, even they did it that way. It's just, I guess, complexities arise with the numbers of people as opposed to uh, with crossing borders and... Uh, um, and the, the side, yeah, 
uh, does, does that company have a, an international presence? Is that why you went to Sydney, or is it? The uh, it's actually a very. People, are the three hundred people all in Austin? I don't think so. Probably not. Yes, they are. Oh. Uh, so it's actually a fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred people company. It's a very interesting company, uh, and I'd, I'd love to say a word about it sure, because. So it was established in 2001 by uh, uh, two fellows from, from Australia, Scott and Mike, uh, and it, it, it was bootstrapped. They didn't have any investors, um, and they just IPO'd a couple of weeks ago uh, on NASDAQ. And looking at them, I was thinking, if, if I ever got to build a company that is this big and that ends up on, on an IPO, this is the company I'd like it to be. Uh, it's... They are so. First of all, when you talk to the CEOs, they are very humble, very, very open. They um, would never pull rank on you or something like that. It really, they feel like colleagues. Obviously, they're extremely busy colleagues, so that when that adds a little bit of stress every time you're talking to them, because you know that they have 150 meetings waiting for them. Uh, but they would be very open, listening. They would never try to be. Um, uh, evangelical or something or try to teach you how to live your life or anything like that. They're Mostly they're really just listening, which I believe is what a, a, a good leader should be doing most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, <clears throat> so they started in Australia. Um, they're still, this is still their biggest office. They've actually been voted best employer in Australia for two years in a row, which has never happened before. Um, and uh, from that perspective, actually, they have a lot of the perks that European employees are used to uh, and that not don't normally exist in, in the U.S. They have, for example, huge maternity leave. Uh, obviously, the free food and all that stuff is, is part of every uh, Silicon Valley company these days. But um, it, it's um, the, the I've never seen people being stressed out at the offices and working into the nights and everything like that. It's uh, it's a very solid um, it's a very solid place. So. Um, once they started in Australia, they went to, to, I think they went to New York for a couple of months or something like that. And then decided, Oh, actually we should go to San Francisco. So this is their second office, San Francisco. Then they, uh, created a few branches in, in Vietnam and Amsterdam. And actually Austin is their latest, newest thing. Um, and the 300 people in there, uh, have all been uh, added to the team in the past two years. So do you you know why Austin, do you know why Austin? Um, that's actually, um, I, I think, I think it's mostly because, uh, San Francisco is becoming pretty hard to, a pretty hard place to build a comp- to yeah. build a team. Sure. Uh, it's extremely expensive, uh, both for the employees and the employers. Uh, real estate is really expensive. I know that they've been, um, um, that they had, so Atlassian has a great team there, but I think that it's like built like, just like. 300 new engineers like that in San Francisco. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's possible. Whereas in Austin, it's still a very big market, still a very dynamic place. Uh, but you have a lot of people. Um, it's, 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 it's also easier to get people to relocate to Austin because of the prices there. And, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Would, would you say that, would you say that Austin is coming up behind San Francisco now? There, there seem to be lots of small companies and growing companies that are moving to Austin. Yeah. So it has that. It's, first of all, it has all the hipster feel that uh, SF has. So I think that's, <laughs> that's one checkbox there. You have all the bearded people and uh, uh, drinking funny beers and, uh, and whatnot. Actually, that's just a, just a side story here. Austin, um, uh, probably has hundreds and hundreds of 
um, craft beers all over the place. Uh, and I find my, I find that six months into moving there, I still, I still only drink Lone Star, which is the most industrial Texas beer. There. I just can't find one that I like. It's not like when you go to Belgium and you have crowd beers and, and like at least 60% of them taste nice. They all taste weird to me. Like it's a, I guess it's the hipster thing. As long <laughs> they, as you don't go on Falstaff, because that's what? really bad. Falstaff is another Texas beer. It's popular in Texas anyway. You know, oh, okay. uh, just a quick uh, parenthesis here. Uh, I mentioned my experience in Huntsville, and both Huntsville and Austin, I think they're kind of similar because Huntsville isn't um, – Digium's in Huntsville, right? If I'm not – if I'm not, uh, That sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah. Aren't they, Andy? Digium's in Huntsville. Okay. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. And what I was going to – the simple thing is that when you go to these places, they're not the hickey – I mean, Alabama, I don't want to say anything bad about Alabama. I'm just saying that both Texas and Alabama have a – a certain rural reputation, but obviously <laughs> Austin and Huntsville are similar in that the people you saw, for example, I mean, I went there, this was years ago, and the first thing I noticed when in the, uh, like in the cafeteria was, was that black and white people were sitting together having a really good time. I mean, there really was not any trace that visibly, anyway, in public, a large number of people were all having a good time, and they had a lot of people from India and Pakistan uh, also, by the way, for, apparently mm-hmm. there's a very yeah. big strength in mathematics. You may know something about this. Uh, and so these guys would be coming over and uh, being parts of the engineering team. Anyway, close that parentheses. Back to, um, uh, to the company. Uh, how does your team fit into their plan? I mean, they obviously had a reason to acquire. Uh, how did that uh, plug in? So uh, you may be familiar with their HipChat product. Um, which is, uh, I know that you guys have been using Slack on occasion to talk to each other. Uh, that's actually a very similar uh, product in, in many ways. Uh, I think same clientele, basically same features. And uh, they they thought they wanted a good video experience for HipChat that is more than just, uh, ah, you know, let's integrate Hangouts or something like that. Uh, so this is where we came in. And uh, we're still exactly the same thing, team. Um, one of the uh, very amazing things that happened when we moved over uh, to Atlassian is that um, they agreed to keep the project going as an open source initiative. And um, they didn't have to do that. Uh, they just uh, agreed that this is best for, for Atlassian, best for the community. And um, so a very big chunk of the work that we've been doing has been actually going out to the open source community. And you have other companies out there like, there's this new video conferencing company that's very popular, that's becoming very trendy in the U.S., Hi-Fi, for example. They're potentially um, thinking of building their new platform based on uh, uh, based on our stuff, and uh, there are even bigger names out there that I can't uh, really mention in, uh, in public, although it's mm-hmm. really burning me to. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is that uh, a lot of the work that Atlassian is uh is doing on, on GT is actually available to everyone, which is uh, not just, not just a, you know, hippie feeling. Everyone should be playing together and love each other. I think it's great for the industry. It's great for Atlassian. Uh, and obviously we're getting a lot of feedback from people using it. Um, so um, back ever since we arrived, we did a bunch of interesting things. Um, performance, for example, has been, uh, uh, we've done a lot of work on performance. We've, implemented things like uh, like simulcast and that actually was a huge project uh we also added a lot of things that were missing in the bridge that you actually need in order to build a big infrastructure um um like for example 
being able to check the health of every component in your system so that you would have something automated that would respin it if it goes down, uh, being able to monitor all of that. This is, um, oh, here's James. Uh, so all of these, um, um, I, I would say that this is a little bit of a, uh, we were a professional open source project even before, but now this is even uh, an additional professional twist. Uh, to me, actually, I would say that one of the most uh, educational parts, um, one of the domains where I've learned the most, other than actually understanding what a product manager is supposed to do, <laughs> but one of the places I've learned the most is um, infrastructure and uh, uh, dealing with big infrastructures, what their needs are, how you set them up, and uh, how you heal them, all of these things. This has been very, very interesting to me, um, so... Are very enriching as well. And this is where we've enriched Jitsi the most as well. This sounds very much, Emil, like um, a dream and pretty much the feeling that I was hoping and that you would confirm, which is that when you were, because you and I spoke when you were faced with the decision, you probably spoke to a few close friends. And right. I, was, I was privileged to be one of those. And we had a we had long talks about this, but we, did, we didn't yes. really touch on. Well, we kind of did touch on, but it was more of a back and forth thing, very short bursts of communication. But my point being that uh, when you anguished, I guess that might be the word. This was a very tough decision to make, and a lot of the reasons, a lot of the things that you just said confirm the positive aspect of it. In other words, I'm sure you were worried about the open source thing, but not just open source, but also just how is this going to affect... You just did God knows how many thousands of hours with the team working on this thing, and for all you knew, they could just go, okay, now we're going to junk all this because we actually bought the um, intellectual uh, force that you represent, and you're going to do something totally different. We want you to work on you know, improving our POTS network or something. It could have been anything. So you had to confirm, but even um, getting, even the nice uh, flowery uh, words of someone who's about to inquire while you're um, dealing, you know, they could also turn around and be horrible people who ignored all the things they said, as long as it's not on paper. We spoke about, you know, looking at the papers and all of that thing. And what's important is the reality behind it. And so it sounds like this has pretty much been a good trip and that you didn't land like I did when I joined the Air Force, where you it's a great feeling and everything's wonderful and the recruiter and it's all, you know, shaking the hands and smiles. And then when you get off that plane, which happened to be in Texas, by the way, it's all of a sudden people are shouting at you at the top of your lungs and telling you to go this way and that and take all your clothes off and stuff. So... Um, you didn't experience that part, at least. Anyway, <laughs> this no. is fantastic, and I'm really pleased. And James Bodie has joined us, and that was Andy Smith asking an excellent question a while back. And if he's pointing, he's pointing at something, meaning he may want to speak. Or is that James who wants to speak? No. Not today. For the moment, uh, yeah, because James Miss Wayne, he's got his tie on, too. And here it is. It's Christmas Day. So getting back to uh, your experience, you were in Sydney is yeah. there a chance you're going to be relocating there, or yeah? Um, I, I don't think immediately. Um, someday, some, someday I would love to do that. Seriously, it's a it's a really nice place. It feels like a calmer version of London, I would say, huh. uh, without all the hooligans. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Thank it, you for that. <laughs> well, we do have a lot of those. They're all I, mean, I really wouldn't guarantee that. I know a few people in Sydney, and I'm sorry, your initial impressions may not be quite correct there. Sir. <laughs> probably, probably true. But well, course, it's, most, it's, 
In London, most of them are located at Truphone anyway, so there's not really a, you can always avoid that. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, no, it's always uh, you, you, every time you generalize, you're bound to make a mistake, obviously. But um, no, Sydney does uh, uh, does have a great feeling to it, very European, and at the same time, a little bit detached. Um, I also got a chance to uh, to hug a few koalas, uh, which is an amazing experience. Uh, Para kangaroo, uh, so they're um, one thing that really fascinated me was um, this museum, uh, the Naval History Museum. Uh, I got to go in the submarine, uh, and that's uh, like half an hour later. I was really claustrophobic. Uh, also, after having hit my head about six times in various uh, things, protruding you're a big guy. From, you're a big <laughs> yeah. guy. Yeah, I cannot understand how people spend three months there uh, at a time. So that's really a mystery to me. And, but your, and your son will grow up knowing three languages, English, Texan, and Australian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's actually going to a Spanish-speaking uh, Spanish school because that's the first place where we could find a place. And uh, uh, he might actually start speaking Spanish before everything else. That would be wonderful, uh, though, wouldn't it? It would be great. I would have loved him to learn French as well because uh, that's actually his only nationality. But uh, we'll have to address the problem at a later stage. Um, so yeah, Sydney at some point that would be uh, that would be that would be great certainly. Um, and uh, Andy, you asked at some point if I thought uh, Austin might be becoming a new San Francisco. Uh, I certainly think there's a lot of people there um, that um, that see it that way. Uh, and but if you objectively look today at where the tech jobs are all over the all over the U.S., I really think there's Seattle, SF, and and Austin are the three main hubs. Uh, in terms of uh, capital, in terms of um, new startups being created, the, the tech jobs being available. Um, so obviously, the thing that SF, maybe primarily because of the capital, uh, is leading Seattle and, uh, and Austin by a lot at this point. Um, but a lot of what's happening in Austin in terms of the, even the real estate market or uh, the number of startups is makes you think it's San Francisco from six or seven years ago. Um, so it's uh, gotta yes. be, it's gotta be much cheaper though, too. And that uh, San Francisco, the housing and all of that, it's a huge problem. So it's a, one of the most charming cities in the world. I think you'd agree San Francisco. Yeah. But, um, and very European, as you said, actually it feels a lot when we were there with Yana and she said that it feels a lot to her, like, uh, like Paris, actually. I don't know what you would yeah, say. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's a, there, first of all, there's a million great restaurants there. I mean, really, you yeah. could spend months there and go to a restaurant, a different restaurant twice every week uh, and probably not run out after maybe even a year. I mean, it's just we have friends there and the friends love people who live in San Francisco want to take you to their favorite places. And whenever we've stayed there, we've never run out of, of new places and all kinds of every possible ethnic variation. Right. Yeah. I don't know about Austin, but I'm sure Austin has gained hugely from this tech influx too, just like Huntsville probably did. It, it has. Um, it has gained a lot. And actually in terms of restaurants, uh, it, it's really exceptional as well. Uh, you could, exactly as you said, you could be eating twice a week at different places and not run out in years. Uh, it's 50 and 50 different variations of uh Tex-Mex, right? No. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm sure there's all kinds of ethnic. There's got to be an influx of all kinds of people. And I'm sure there is. Right. There is. But obviously, there's a lot of Tex-Mex. There's a lot of barbecue. I never, I hadn't even, I hadn't ever eaten a brisket before oh. I went to, 
to Texas. And my first brisket was in Texas. And I was just like the minute I bit into it, all the (laughs) juice in this, it was just incredible. (laughs) It is good, isn't it? It is very good. Now in here, I'm to make noise. So, uh, James, you might want to turn off your video. Yeah, turn off your video because you're completely bandwidth challenged now, James. We didn't get that. It sounds like your family is going to execute you, too. I think he's been drinking. Already. Find it. Right, we're really going to have. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not sure what was going on there, and I'm really glad that we're not recording the video. <laughs> didn't feel like James was on Earth. I would have suggested some other. Well, he looked, there was a great high def uh, video for a second, but then he just right at that moment something happened. I think the the family's sabotaging him by downloading a bunch of movies or something. <laughs> Amy, yeah, I, I can tell you exactly what's going on. He, he's he's on the limit of an LTE connection, and it's raining. Okay. <laughs> Plus, he was threatened. He already explained this that he couldn't take part in much of the call because uh, having to do with devices and phones on this day. Anyway, let's get back to you, Emil. Uh, we spoke to, on Tuesday. We had, uh, as I've told you, we had Tim Hatton and the whole gang with us. We were talking WebRTC, and I'd love it if you feel like doing it uh, to talk a little bit about the year, or even if you're still, you know, big time into WebRTC personally yourself. Uh, what you thought of the uh, the you know major moments of maybe the year besides the acquisition, uh, and also, or maybe look forward to the future of WebRTC and how it's being seen and how it's doing. So I've given you like 20 different directions you could take. Yeah. Uh, you take whichever one you like. All right. Uh, so I'll take the 21st. Um, so I, it's, um, I, I think a lot of the hype around WebRTC has uh, gone away. And um, you now see that it's a technology that moves at a pace, which is not really, uh, it's not like, you know, when um, back in the 70s and 80s, with all the science fiction and, and all the new discoveries and us going to the moon and everything, we imagined a bunch of things. Uh, well, in 2015, we were supposed to be having hoverboards, right? Uh, and uh, on the very date that was supposed to happen, there weren't any, at least. Well, maybe there are some, but they're being kept secret. Um, so uh, back when WebRTC started, um, I would... I would say that there was a similar feeling. People were imagining a change of the internet within the next two or three years uh, because suddenly so many barriers had been removed, so many frustrations that have been in the way of uh, RTC developers. Um, and now uh, all of that has gone away a little bit. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's a, here there's he is. A, here he there's is. a new presence here. Um, so Emil V2. Emil V2, yeah, that's... Uh, that's him. That's uh, just uh, so a, a lot of the um, false expectations have uh, uh, what's the word settled down. I would say, um, and and now you only um, you only have the real thing, which is the fact that this is a great quality media stack available with an easy to use JavaScript API. So new applications are popping up, not in a life changing way, uh, but people come up with new things and so interesting. Uh, interesting problems. One other thing that keeps um, that, that you keep hearing when you are 
So one of the things you keep hearing when um, you talk about long-term long WebRTC, I'm sorry about that, um, experts. Like, like father, is that, like son, obviously. Like father, like son, right. <laughs> yeah, our, our words makes, make exactly the same amount of sense. Um, so one of the things you keep hearing in the WebRTC world is people saying, people say, oh, I'm tired of all these video conferencing things. I would like uh, people to actually start building the interested in innovative applications that you uh, that you can build with WebRTC. And everyone is coming sort of short. Uh, that's always was an amusing. Uh, that was always an amusing thing to me. It's a it's a, it's an audio video stack. Um, so don't expect that people are going to go into your ca cancer with it. Uh, it. It is meant for WebRTC. So obviously, ninety percent of the use cases years down the road would be about audio video conferencing, uh, which doesn't really bother me because I'm a uh, I mean, uh, just as you, Randy, and the other people, and, the, and James and, and Andy, this is this is our life. So uh, we don't mind um, if, if, if we don't mind if things focus around audio video conferencing. Um, and so a lot of these, um, uh, let's see how RTC is going to solve cancer attitudes have now gone away a little bit, and some of them are saying, "Oh no, here they are, the innovative applications. Alcatel did something interesting, or whoever." Well, they yeah. Um, so it's it has matured. It still has some of, um, you know, it's not it it's not the exact panacea that people expected in terms of um, it's still not available on Safari. Uh, whatever we have currently on Edge, for example, is not fully compatible uh, in terms of video. So on mobile, there's still there's mobile, still no yeah. easy way to, to to go and build a WebRTC application. You still have to muck about with the with the WebRTC stack itself, which compared to the JavaScript API, isn't really that lightweight to develop for. But it's um, so I would say that we've, um, in general, the RTC industry has uh, uh, gained a few years, has gained a, little, a good amount of velocity, but we're still moving in the same uh, uh, in the same direction. And for 2016, I would say um, my opinion is that. Um, we will still be seeing incremental progress. I don't expect cure cancer, cancer curing applications there either. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I I think that we would be uh, we would be seeing more. But actually, what is it that you primarily gain from WebRTC? The lowered barriers means that it's easier for startups to go and innovate in the direction of RTC. It's easier to see new applications and. Um, so competition rises. Uh, it's no longer just, you know, Siemens and Cisco and, and whoever. Now you have a bunch of others as well, uh, including Atlassian. So the competition is much tougher, and that always leads to a better uh, to better applications for everyone. So um, that's, that, that's the direction that I see us going mm -hmm. into. Um, you know, being as everybody, the, the big uh, saying of the last year or two is the future is mobile or mobile is now. And it is true. I mean, I personally am not hung on mobile the way most people are, but especially younger people. I know what so you mean. This yeah. is a huge, yeah, I mean, I prefer to have a desk. By the way, I had this conversation uh, last time we got together. I think it was in uh, Lisbon with a bunch of people and they weren't, no one was anywhere near my age, but everyone said, oh, I got to have a desktop. I love to have mobile. It's great to have a tablet, but I have to have, and I still feel that way. However, yeah. what I was going to say about with regard to what you were just saying is that I wonder, so WebRTC as the JavaScript version that we're talking on now, basically, that kind of a plat, that, that whole paradigm, 
one of the nice things, if you exclude Safari, is that it's going to work on at least, let's say, two browsers anyway. That you're, it's independent. It's and it's certainly right. platform independent. When when you transfer that over to mobile, though, we've seen that, for example, Apple has FaceTime, uh, Chrome has well Hangouts, which are, I guess, on mobile. I don't know if it's you call that WebRTC or not, but it is a form of video and RTC. Uh, they work more or less okay, by the way, but that's more a question of power. Anyway, what I was getting to is that you're much more platform-dependent on mobile. So if Apple decides, hey, screw WebRTC, which they kind of have so far with Safari, by the way, uh, you're not going to get it there. Uh, and they have the power, just as one example, Apple has the power of not allowing apps in their app store. I don't know if you people do or even can sideload apps on Apple, but that would be a tiny minority anyway. Same thing with the Chrome Store, uh, the web, st- the um, I'm sorry, the uh, the Google Play, whatever the apps, Google Apps Store, Play Store. Same thing. If they didn't want, if if somebody comes out with a thing that uh, has requirements they don't like, they can they can get rid of it. Um, so the question really is, if there's a question here at the end of all this diatribe, <laughs> <laughs> the point is, I guess, that uh, as we move forward into more and more and more and more and more and more mobile, uh, it's not as easy to put these things together. You can't just jumpstart something unless you're using a web app in an app or however you do that on mobile. But, but an actual thing that's going to perform well is a lot harder to do for mobile in the realm of, say, web, real-time communication, right? Yeah. So this is going to be the challenge. Is going to be how do we do this so that it works on anything, or at least the two main phones? Or three. Yeah. Um, no, I think there's no way, uh, there's no way you can get that, – that is not currently possible. Uh, have the same application run on the, on the two main uh, mobile apps, that's just not possible. You can use the same stack. You can use the WebRTC org stack on the, uh, uh, on the two platforms, but um, the way you build your application on top of that is, is completely different. And just using, again, just using that stack is uh, really significantly harder than using the JavaScript API. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, and again, you're right there. When you're coding an application for, for iPhone on um on the uh, on iOS uh, using the WebRTC stack, um, you're a step behind FaceTime because well, um, either you're using VP8, in which case there's no hardware encoding for you uh, that impacts quality to some extent. It impacts um, um, CPU consumption, enhanced battery life. So uh, there's that uh, there's that problem. And even if you are using H.264, well, then who are you really talking to? Because not about not all the other browsers really support it. I'm not sure what Chrome did with that. Uh, it was supposed to land in Chrome beta by the end of the year. H.264 supported it. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't heard anything, but maybe I just missed it. Um, have you guys heard anything about that? Um, about Chrome supporting H.264? Not recently, no. Yeah. Um, so maybe that will come. But anyway, so it's it's still quite. I mean, you have applications there like Tolki and uh, names are escaping me right now. But there are a bunch of people that actually did manage to get their stuff into appear in also uh, got it as an application in um, uh, in the Apple Store. But um, it's not an easy it's not an easy thing. Um, and as for, I would love to talk about mobile video conferencing. That's a very that's a very interesting thing to me um, because on the one hand, I would I, I'm there's no doubt in my mind that the experience that you have speaking from a desktop computer like we are currently 
um, is really it cannot be reached by mobile uh, in, in years to come. And it's not only about CPU resources, it's just the, um, the hardware that's available to you, uh, even the microphones and, and the cameras of, of different quality. So a mobile to me is always going to be, not always, but in the foreseeable future is going to remain a fallback solution for video conferencing. Mm-hmm. As such, however, I think it's pretty important. I've actually had to join meetings, video meetings for work in the past um, in the past several months from the car uh, because it turns out actually that one of the meetings that we have at work is right at the time when I need to get Alex from, from kindergarten. Uh, and I keep having that meeting from, uh, from my car. And I actually feel amazed that here I am driving my car, having a video conversation. Uh, that's the, the, even though it's not as good of a quality as it, as it would be in a conference room, uh, it still completely enables me to get in, have a comfortable meeting. So, um, to me, even that is a win. Even a fallback solution is uh, with lower quality. It's still, um, it's it's still great. So to sum it up, I don't think mobile is going to to be the majority anywhere near the the major use case, but it's going to be to remain a very important fallback scenario for uh, video conferencing. Mm-hmm. I think that also the uh, in addition to what you said, um, I read a book about mobile a couple of years ago, and I, I was very impressed by the one concept, which is that mobile isn't the device you're using. It's the situation you're in. So you just mentioned one, which is in a car, but you could also be on a subway. I'm not saying, by the way, forget video for a second. I'm just talking about the situation of having a mobile device. You might be lying on the couch. Uh, You might be stable or not stable as far as the camera goes. So when we're looking at these things, we need to look at not just, well, yes, we need a better microphone and a microphone that's going to exclude noises or, or a headset, whatever that's you know going to turn into. You need a headset more or less for desktop anyway, usually. Uh, but you also need stability in the camera or you need a stand that's going to work for you in whatever situation you're in in mobile. So I don't know how you do this in the car. I mean, maybe you've got one of those uh, things that sticks to the windshield, to the uh, dashboard yeah. or to yeah, the window what or whatever. So they can see you. You can't really be watching them unless you're stuck in a uh, parking lot True, of traffic, yeah. right? Hopefully True. you're not looking at the, <laughs> at the talking <laughs> heads while you're driving. But anyway, that's uh, a major point that I thought was really good about this this book I was looking at, which is the whole mobile discussion. Yes, we need better CPUs. And they need uh, maybe hardware processing for the codecs for the, for video, but and better microphones and better cameras maybe too. But there's also the, all of the other stuff that you don't care about on a desktop, which is this being able to follow and be stable under vibrations. Those are the conditions that we're talking about, and uh, lots of noise usually because if you're mobile, you're not in control of the noise usually. Yeah. Yeah, um, and some of them have technological solutions. I actually remember a video that you posted. Um, maybe it was three or four years ago. You were walking around some square in Bordeaux, right. uh, holding your mobile in your hand, and then that was artificially stable. Uh, I mean, post-processed and stabilized by some Google feature. I don't know if they still well, do that. Well, that was well, that was YouTube, and it took like half an hour for a one-minute video. So, right. I don't think we're going to be uh, seeing that on a mobile anytime soon. Do they still have that, by oh, the yeah, way? yeah, they have image stabilizer. They have all kinds of things to improve your video. I don't generally use them. And I got complaints from people using it there because... So I was walking around. You can imagine it was shaking. You you saw it, but for people who can't imagine, as you walk, you 
it's very hard unless you have a dolly or something to walk without uh, the image shaking around. So if you don't have a physical stabilizer, YouTube will stabilize that video. But what happens is it stabilizes in a way that's kind of nauseating, a little bit like the 3D isn't can be <laughs> nauseating. In other words, so, and a couple of people wrote me and said that's awful. I can't watch that because it it slides around in a way that makes you seasick is the best actually. Right, motion sickness right. gives me motion sickness. People said, and it did in a way. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, but maybe you can imagine that this is uh, still addressable by technology, but some of those are not. I mean, uh, just the, when you're mobile, you're exposed to all the elements out there, as you said, the noises and everything. Uh, I, I don't believe that technology would be able to solve all of that. And it doesn't have to, because, again, to me, if it just provi- if it's just good enough as a fallback solution that you do every once in a while, that's already that's already a huge win. Well, if you have self-driving cars, I guess you could have a sort of desktop in the car, too. That would be another way to do it. You'd be on LTE or whatever the newest LTE is, but uh, that's actually getting quite a bit better. How are you seeing coverage? This is kind of just a tiny detail in life, but how how are you seeing coverage and also costs of Internet? Um, Well, maybe your company pays for your phone, but in the States, um, most things with regard to connectivity are horribly expensive because they they are. That was shocking to me. Yeah. So uh, the first several months, um, I had a combined package, just as in France with TV, and I didn't even take the phone. Actually, I didn't have the phone. I wasn't paying for the phone. Right. Just at home, TV and uh, internet was costing me two hundred dollars a month. Cable and, was that? Uh, that's fiber. cable. No, that was that was fiber, AT and T fiber, okay. um, and so. That's um, the, the quality is, is pretty decent. I was actually uh, I had fiber in France as well, but I could only do a maximum of 300 megabits uh, when I was speed testing. Uh, maybe that's better um, today. But like w- immediately after I moved, I was doing 900 megabits uh, on the fiber that AT&T got me there. Um, but the, just the price is, is outrageous. And mobiles are uh, the, the, the same. I'm basically paying. Uh, $60 a month for this AT&T thing again uh, for just mobile. And it's so frustrating because the internet is good. Uh, I get, at least in Austin, you get 4G coverage pretty much all over the place. Obviously, there are uh, spots that you're not that well covered, but most of the time it's good. But, like, the whole packaging is so weird. I cannot make a call. Um, Like, in France, you would make a call, an international call, and you would be billed extra on top of your contract, and you needed to do it at some point. doesn't matter. You pay for it. Uh, I cannot even do that in the U.S., which is amazing to me because uh, everyone has this vision of the U.S. that if there's a business opportunity somewhere, we'll explore right. it. Uh, now I need to make calls, and I just get frustrating messages telling me, no, nope, you cannot make this call because it's not covered by your plan. And I'm, uh, So, yeah, there's been some – I'm sure that if you are uh, – if you, if you know the – the provider's well enough, you're probably going to make to find an offer uh, that suits you better than what I have. Uh, but I'm pretty sure as well that it's going to be more expensive than the equivalent in Europe. And um, that's, that's, inc- uh, that's absolutely incredible what you just said. I'm amazed. I'm sure there are plans because, as you know, here in France, with, with the advent of free two or three years ago, uh, not only is the price reasonable, we have them as an ISP, so we pay... Uh, the equivalent of about $25, probably a little less than $25 a month per uh, phone for for uh for 4G, 20 gigs a month of 4G, which I've never even come close to by the way because I don't watch TV or anything on it. 
But also, we can call uh, 110 countries uh, included, free. unlimited included, and roaming in Europe. Uh, and uh, we also can call from our so-called fixed line, which is, of course, a VoIP service uh, bundled into the whole thing. So the cost, the total cost of everything, we have uh, three LTE lines because I have a third one to use for MiFi as a backup. Uh-huh. Um, those are 16 euros each, so three times 16, whatever that is, uh, three, 40, is that 48, <laughs> right? 48? 48. 48. Oh, Thank shit. you very much. 48. <laughs> and it's maybe another 40, so 88, certainly under 100, probably under $100 for calling at from home or on any of the three mobiles uh, yeah. to, to over 100 countries. And that would Unlimited. be close to $400 for me, the equivalent. Like, if I were to have all these things, that would be close to but I think there's, But I think there's a box you can check, Emil, probably. You will be billed additionally, but I'm sure... The, the, I think the lack of calling internationally is more because they don't want your kids to get, you know, assuming they're older, get, to get a hold of it and make a bunch of calls. Or no, I actually be, think it was... You uh, absolutely can't do it? I can't believe that. Um, no, I think, actually, you could... Uh, you authorize, well, but it's a billing um, thing. I think it was um, when we got there. Uh, we had only been there for a little while. We couldn't. We couldn't actually get normal subscriptions uh, because we were foreigners. We Ooh. didn't have a credit history, uh, so we had to get prepaid phones. And as part of the prepaid, uh, you don't you don't have the international. Uh, it was actually very hard for me. I wanted to prepay for potential international calls, but I didn't find an easy option today. Right. And and again, maybe if I look long enough, I will find one. Uh, it's just that it's not readily available to me. And uh, I still haven't switched back to. I don't even know if I can already switch. I don't know if I'm viewed as a uh, as a good citizen credit wise just mm. yet in the U.S. So um, yeah, maybe I, I've just hit the wrong corner cases. And uh, uh, but so even if you remove that, just the pricing of the whole thing is is, is outrageous. I um, uh, like I don't know. I don't know how modest like people with uh, more difficulties. I work. I have the chance to work with it for a tech for a good tech company that pays well. And Yana is as well, so we are uh, pretty well off, I would say. Uh, and like the two hundred dollars a month are not ruining us. It's it, it just baffles me how much it costs, but they're not ruining mm-hmm. us. I do not, I cannot see how modest income families would uh, would take that load. That's just uh, that's the first thing I think about every time you talk about these prices. And uh, and and in in France, uh, in the rest of Europe, uh, that's the, the numbers that you gave, like twenty. 20 euros a month, that's pretty much affordable to every to every family. So, well, I have to say that uh, that era was only ushered in by uh, Xavier Niel when he brought, when he got yeah. finally was able to get free happening. Otherwise, the 20 was 60 euros a month for, for a modest plan. Uh, what we used to do is use a pay, paper, what do you call it? A prepaid, I guess? Yeah. So yeah. you had you had internet that was extremely limited, but it was $12, 12 euros a month for the internet, plus the Mobicart, whatever that was. That was another 15, I think. And that was, you were being billed at like 50 cents a minute for uh, Yeah, no, that was, was ridiculous. Horrible, yeah. Anyway, that, that whole landscape has changed. Andy, you want to ask any questions or make any conclusions? You said you have to go pretty soon. Can I just ask the, the one other question? You you abandoned your Lamborghini, sir. <laughs> no, it was a Maserati. <laughs> oh, it was a Maserati. Yes, it was. 
Yeah. Yes, okay. It wasn't about the royalty you were going to get. Cooler, yeah, just cooler to... heads, cooler heads uh, prevailed, I guess. Huh? <laughs> well, it was. Uh, uh, um, that's because I uh, I was joking with, well, not really joking, but um, uh, Andy was asking, "What sort of a car are you going to get?" And uh, I don't know. I, the Maserati really looks great and everything. Uh, but once we got there, well, first we had the stroller, so uh, you have to have a place for that. All right. <laughs> uh, secondly, well, there's actually there actually is a big Maserati, but um, uh, that aside, we uh, we got to try a Tesla and uh, uh, and really really fell in love into it. And not because again, I'm not a big brand fan. I'm not an Apple fan. I'm not uh, uh, pretty much like like you guys. And I know that Andy, Randy, you've been saying the same things. Um, you just want something that works the way you want it to work. Um, and really just driving a Tesla feels exactly that way. Just the technology of it and, um, not having to go to the gas station anymore ever. Uh, that's such a convenient thing. You never even think about it when you own a car, uh, that you have to go through this place every time again and again. Um, no, you just go, go home and, and, and charge every once in a while. And that's all you need to do. There's, uh, uh, you're not changing oil anymore. Even brakes, you're not changing your brakes because mm. they have this um, regenerative braking thing where uh, when you lift your foot off the uh, of the accelerator, it starts braking with a dynamo. So um, you, you're not using your brakes in that case. And uh, that car just uh, the car is just a pretty good piece of technology. The self driving features and all that that's uh, really really impressive. Uh, and it has this. Uh, this enormous screen, which every time I look at it, makes me think about, hmm, I'm sure you could do some pretty good video conferencing things on that. Sure. Uh, but as you said yourself, uh, you're not in the car to watch it talking hands. So uh, so there's that. But, um, yeah, I really like the, the technology behind isn't there another? And, uh, isn't there another problem with video conferencing when you're behind the wheel, and that would be uh, you'd need a profanity filter or something if you were in any traffic? <laughs> 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 or a profanity injector, possibly. Plus, what are they looking at? Yeah, well, maybe the thing that uh, takes over for you with the loudspeaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, automatic censorship. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting. And it's fantastic to catch up with you. Uh, I'll it thank James. Catch up with you guys. <laughs> I'll thank James because he's not here, and thank you, Andy. And again, Emil, uh, very best wishes to you and Yana and Alexander for 2016. And we hope to get you on a VUC again one of these days before we you go to Sydney. Yeah, all right. Go to Sydney. <laughs> no, because then it'll be too late. It'll be in the middle of the night. <laughs> well, we're, we're definitely going to do that for the VUC. But thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for having me here, uh, Randy. And uh, nice seeing you, Andy. And uh, nice seeing James, who's not here. Always, always, always a pleasure to be to be in the DC. Okay, and you take care of yourself. Good. It's always good to hear you too. Emil. Thank you. We, we love you, Emil. We do. Oh, I love you too. We do. Let's all put our uh, let's all put our jitsi hoodies on now. <laughs> hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at vuc.me on the web. Thanks to simwood.com who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from VoxPhone.com. 
every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time. See you next week.